Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. I think that we can uh, safely say that the sign of a community network whether it's public-owned, whether it's in some sort of public-private partnership, the, the first sign of success or that you are moving down the successful path is when the incumbent telcos, via a series of AstroTurf groups, starts complaining and criticizing the projects. And while there is a, a philosophical issue with some folks about uh, whether communities should or should not be uh, running their own networks, I think that where we cross the line from a philosophical discussion to just outright treachery is when we start hearing uh, a whole bunch of untrue statements that are leveled against uh, municipal network projects. So I figured it is high time that we attack the issue head on and talk to a couple of folks who are in the trenches uh, either advocating for or, or actually are building these networks to really start fact-checking some of the, uh, the claims and assertions that are out there. So I've invited Jesse Harris, who is um, the senior editor of uh, Free Utopia, and he is very deeply involved in uh, broadband in the state of Utah, and particularly the Utopia project that is now reviewing a very serious document that would bring in outside help from a company called Macquarie to help move their... Um, broadband network project forward. I also have on the show uh, Sandy Cedar, who is the assistant um, city manager for the city of Longmont. And Longmont has run three referendum campaigns uh, over the past few years, each one moving the community forward. The first one was not a very good referendum outcome that led to referendum number two and number three, which were successful, but in that time, there was a lot of um, just untrue statements made about broadband. So I figure Sandy is going to be an excellent source of, you know, this is what we've heard, this is what we've had to deal with, and here's how we've overcome that. Uh, And both of you, thank you for being on the show this morning. Thank you. Sure. So let's jump right in. Um, Jesse, you're in the middle of... Uh, I guess what can best be described as a street brawl with the uh, AstroTurfers regarding the Macquarie deal. And maybe just give us a 30-second, what is the Macquarie deal about? I think my, a lot of the listeners are familiar with the Utopia Project, but, um, but let's start with, you know, what's the Macquarie deal, and then what are some of the most outrageous things you've heard said about Muni Broadband in this, in this current phase? The deal on a high level is that Macquarie is going to come in, uh, they're going to finish building the network, maintain it, and operate it for 30 years. In exchange for that, they're going to charge a per-address utility fee to the cities. The cities uh, turn around and figure out how to collect that money. Uh, It was recommended that they assess a fee to every user. Um, What the cities get out of this is they get to keep the vast majority of the wholesale revenue. Based on the numbers I've played with, it's about 60 to 70% of the wholesale revenue stays in their coffers. So what should happen around a 40% take rate, which is pretty doable, is that cities are actually going to bring in more income than they're going to be paying out to Macquarie for the utility fee. Um, For Utopia cities, it's a great deal because it allows them to pay off some of their existing bonds from what they've already built. It won't cover all of it, um, but it's better than having to pay the whole thing. And then they don't have to worry about surprises like network refreshes and operational shortfalls. Uh, what we've, what I've seen happen very, very often is that the cost aspect is being pushed very heavily and the income portion is being completely and totally ignored. Um, it's specifically to try and make it seem like this is a project that's all cost, no benefit, which is completely and totally false. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll take each one of those in um, in in order and, and sort of dissect it. But 
of, of all of their claims, what's the most um, erroneous and outrageous? Uh, the problem so the worst one are that. people who are are concerned trolling about the technology. They're saying, oh, you know, look what happened to phones in 30 years. Look at what happened to computers in just 10 years. You know, what's going to happen to fiber, fiber in 30 years? And, you know, everyone who knows the technology scratches their heads and goes, it will still be there being used with whatever the current tech is. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're relying on people not understanding the technology. I mean, they say ridiculous things like, oh, well, wireless is going to be faster. And there is not a single technologist that would believe that statement, not even for a moment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you look at the current 802.11ac standard, which is about the fastest you're going to find in wireless. It's got a real-world performance of about 450 megabit. Meanwhile, you can get 40 gig or 100 gig electronics for fiber networks right mm-hmm. now today. And it's a problem we keep running into of wireless is always promising to do tomorrow what fiber did yesterday. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Now, now, Sandy, you've, uh, like I said, you, you have been through the, uh, the referendum fires there. What was the most outrageous claim that was made in the course of that whole, I mean, I know there's a lot to work with, but what, what was one thing that stuck, stuck out in your mind is like a consistent untruth that was brought out against the, the whole idea? You know, our first ballot issue to try to get the uh, state law overturned that bans municipal broadband in Colorado was in 2009, and there was an awful lot of discussion about, you know, why is the municipality trying to do this? There was an organization called No Blank Check because they felt that even though the ballot issue wasn't asking for any money or even authorizing any funds, (laughs) that, uh, that by voting for it, by voting to retain the right to provide municipal broadband service, that voters would be giving the city of Longmont a blank check. Um, so that was probably the most egregious, was just the name of the of the group and the commercials and things that they ran against the uh, ballot issue in 2009. Uh, I was I, I had the opportunity this morning to peruse all the opinion pages from 2009 in preparation for this uh, interview, and it was amazing some of the things that people were saying. They were saying things like, "Well, you might be good at an electric utility." But why would you possibly be good at a telecom utility that, you know, why would you, um, you know, all these other people have failed. And, in fact, one of the things they cited was that the city of Longmont had failed in a fiber, trying to uh, complete the fiber network back in the 90s. What was so interesting about that is that it wasn't the city that failed. The city had contracted with a private provider, and the private provider is the one that went under. (laughs) So I would say those are a couple things that just really tried to scare people was, hey, we're going to take all your money and we're going to dump it down a black hole and you're not going to get anything for it. Okay. So let's start with some of the more um, outrageous stuff that's said and we will work our way through to, uh, to, to, what's, the real, to what's the real deal. I think the most common uh, claim is that all muni networks are are failures, and there are some three to four hundred community-owned networks. Either cities own them alone, or the public utility owns them, or they own them in some sort of partnership, or they're yeah, some 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 sort of partnership. Um, we'll start with Sandy because you did a lot of research of other communities before. Uh, before you got into this, what was your your findings about the the network uh, the networks that are being run by communities? You know, did you run into a lot of failures? I mean, I know I'm, I know people have problems with some of the networks, and some were slow to start. But you know, were there a lot of outright failures in in your estimation? Yeah, when we did our research, there were a few, but the the positives most definitely outweighed um, the negative things that happened. And what we found was that more often it was private providers and the private contracts that actually went under, not the municipal-run networks. Um, And so in in Colorado, since 2005, five other Colorado cities have also um, put through a voter referendum, and I think one more since since we did, um, to allow the right to provide municipal telecom. But then what we really cited when we did our research was that there's over 100 municipalities nationwide that provide high-speed networks for a variety of telecommunication services on their communities, either directly or by collaborating with others. And really the one that we studied the most was the city of Chattanooga, Tennessee, the Electric Power Board, 
Um, they have 600 square mile area, which is connected to Chattanooga's fiber network, and that meant that over 170,000 businesses and homes, regardless of their income or geographic location, which is sometimes what private providers are looking for, have at, have access to internet speeds uh, for up to a gigabit per second. They're a gigabit city. And so we really, we, we had folks that went out and visited with them. We went and saw, saw the city and saw what types of things they were doing and how they managed the rollout, how they managed the billing and all of those good things. But, you know, other examples that we used were the Lafayette Utility Services in Lafayette, Louisiana, the hometown, um, Utelecom in, in Coostown, Pennsylvania. And then we also did some research into in the Utopia and the Utah Telecommunication and Open Infrastructure Agency, which... Um, which is great to, to have you on the phone to be a part of that because we, we researched that as part of the ways that you can provide municipal telecom um, in a way that won't fail. Mm -hmm. Is part of the issue... You know, the, sorry, go ahead. You know, the other thing is that we just recently, so in 2013, we had to go out for the money. We had to go out and see if we could get a bond passed. There was absolutely zero opposition to the bond request of $45.3 million dollars and we finished the bond rating with the with the rating agencies giving us an A rating as far as the broad the telecom broadband um, bonds, which is which is pretty rare, I think. And part of it was because we showed them the track record that we actually do have in kind of doing these types of projects and making them work. Right. Okay. Um, Jesse, what's your your take? Because you you've written about a lot of uh, obviously stuff that's going on in Utah, but. Uh, I'm assuming that you as well have have had an eye on what's been going on in other communities around the U.S. Well, one thing that is definitely uh, unique in Utah is that is the restrictions that we have in place, um, which makes things very different for us. Um, almost immediately out of the gate, the legislature slapped two restrictions on Utopia. Uh, one was that they is that no city could bond for more than 50% of the total construction cost, which obviously that's going to make it very difficult to try completing the network. You have to build half a network and hope you get enough income to finish the rest. Now, the other restriction is that they are not allowed to offer retail services, so they can operate an open access wholesale network. Um, those, those two restrictions together make it a lot more difficult. Uh, so you see a system... And Spanish Fork, which is a little, little further south uh, between uh, Payson and Orem, which are both utopia cities, they operate their own network because they started it before the ban went into effect, and they've been adding $500,000 a year back to the city coffers. Uh, so it's really important to see how those restrictions affect those networks and creative ways that they can get around it. One way that Provo got around the 50% restriction is that they used federal air quality grants to build fiber rings around the city for traffic monitoring, and that uh, that accounted that would account for more than half of the network cost. So it was not wasn't too hard for them to go and bond for the rest and complete building the entire city. Hmm. Right. Okay. So if we is it a good thing to to when people make the claim that all of these networks are failures that you you have to look at these networks beyond, uh, number one, the problems that they encounter in their first couple of years, because I think a lot of, when, they, when people try to justify the claim that networks fail, they talk about the struggles that networks have in the beginning, which is often as the case in, in Utopia. There is legislation mm -hmm. and there are rules that are put into place that can hamstring these networks. So you have to take that into account but also, and probably more importantly, the, the, the cost justification is not always measured in a profit and loss sheet and definitely not in a profit margin realm in the same way that Wall Street looks at, if I invest a million, we've got to make two million or we've got to make three million, right? Isn't there part of the issue here that they try to set standards for success that are not applicable? They're basically comparing apples to oranges, and we can start with Jesse on this one. Yeah, um, it's hard to say, you know, well, one, if any muni network fails, then they're all failures. Um, you know, a question there is, you know, how often do all overbuilders fail? Um, you look at a private overbuilder like Knowledgy or Sonic.net, those 
those are black swans. It, the number of overbuilders that try and fail, the, the country is littered with them. And so to say, well, Muni broadband always fails because Muni is not accurate. It's overbuilders frequently fail because it's really, really, really hard to overbuild. And mm-hmm. I don't think anyone has done a report to see, well, let's see how often private overbuilders fail versus public overbuilders. Uh, and I'd be willing to bet that you know there's not a whole lot of dissimilarity between which ones succeed and which ones fail. Um, right. To be honest, with with the kind of franchise agreements that phone and cable companies negotiate, it seems the only fair way to introduce competition is to have the cities come in and say, you know what, we gave you some really unfair terms and you got to milk it for, for a few decades. Here's the comeuppance. Right. So we we definitely have to look at a at a bigger um, a picture, and um, and it's interesting because Sandy brought up the point that. Uh, when you really delve into it, a lot of the things that are trotted out as failures are actually failures of the private sector. And, and for example, in, in the mini Wi-Fi being probably the best example, examples, Earthlink was the owner of several networks, including Philadelphia. And everyone says that, you know, so they try to hold up Philadelphia as an example of failure. But it was really Earthlink pulling out of the deal and promising something that they couldn't deliver. There were there was Portland, there was Tempe, Arizona, uh, there was Fremont, California. There's basically I don't know a dozen, two dozen communities that had all gone down a path of having a citywide network that was titled Muni Wi-Fi or titled Muni, well not broadband but municipal wireless, when in fact they were owned by the private sector and and so we need to do the the kind of legwork that separates fact from fiction what's another uh claim that uh that tends to have no basis i know there's several related to taxes and 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 sandy you can probably definitely talk to to that issue you know i think one of the ones that we heard was how can you be the regulator and the service provider right because we do have um cable franchise agreements, we have um, electric franchise agreements with other private companies. So one of the claims that came up was, well, how can you regulate us and compete against us? But the reality is that the the Telecommunications Act, the Federal Telecommunications Act, was so incredibly stringent about what you can regulate in those franchise agreements that you you, you can't regulate price, you can't regulate location, Really, the only thing that you can regulate is the is the public access channel. Really, I mean, you can you can't even anymore. You're getting to a point where you can't even regulate the fact that they're going to have a local place of business. So I thought it was I think it was interesting when they say, well, you, you know, you're the one that creates the rules on us. Nope, the federal government creates the rules, not the local government. We tell you where you can put your you know where you can put your fiber and what the processes are to do that. But we are required to give that access. And so I always thought that that was an interesting argument that uh, that we regulate them because we absolutely do not. Right. That's um, and, and how does this stuff? I don't know. How does it get legs? Because isn't that a fairly easy um, easy myth to dispose of? I would say so. I mean, what we saw in our two elections, so we had one in 2009 that failed um, and then one in 2011 that passed. And between those two elections, um, the the no-blank check Colorado Telecom Association spent over half a million dollars opposing those two uh, different ballot issues. Municipalities, on the other hand, once that ballot language is set, we can't advocate for anything. We have got to go with what's considered a factual summary. So we have to show what people who are opposed believe, what people who are supportive believe, um, and and that's it. There's no advocacy from that point forward. Mm-hmm. So is, and now, isn't there also um, uh, an argument either made in uh, in the Utah situation or in, in Colorado that um, <clears throat> the cities have an unfair advantage because they can cross-subsidize, which is another false claim, if I'm not mistaken. Well, in Utah, 
in Utah, cross subsidization is explicitly prohibited. Um, you're now, of course, lawyers can always, you know, play fast and loose with, well, what's the definition of cross subsidization? But I mean, basically, it's you can't sell the product for a, a low enough price that you're not covering the cost of delivering that product. Um, you know, that's that's just a state law thing. It's been that way since 2001. Uh, so to say, oh, there's an unfair subsidy, you know, it's that's not exactly true uh, because it's not legally allowed. Um, you, you know, when it cut, uh, and uh, of course, some people like to define subsidy in a very broad term to say, well, by building the network, by funding anything with tax dollars, it's a subsidy, whether it's you know, you had paying the network construction bonds or operational exp expenditures. Um, and so they, they play really loose with the language to create this, you know, false impression of it being you know, a subsidized product when it really isn't. Right. And isn't the reality that your Comcast and Time Warners conversely can cross-subsidize a different, you know, a dozen ways from Sunday? Well, not only that, but they take advantage of all kinds of federal grant programs. Uh, CenturyLink regularly pops up in the news for receiving state or federal grant money for building networks. Uh, pretty much every one of the rural incumbents in Utah has used universal service funds to uh, roll out new networks in their areas. Uh, you know, whenever they say, let the private sector do its thing. I'm thinking, well, what are you doing with that big bucket of Uncle Sam money sitting in front of you? <laughs> right. And, and there's winners and losers to that. I mean, the private companies then are able to pick the geographic locations that make the most sense for them. So whether that's a great geographic location that will earn them some gigantic grant or whether that's more affluent geographic locations in a specific metropolitan, you know, metropolitan area. I mean, they are, they are picking where their biggest profit margin will be, whereas municipal broadband doesn't pick those winners and losers. It's provided to all. Mm -hmm. So now, um, and so another realm of distortion also appears to be the, you know, what they say versus what they don't say. In other words, they, they don't give you both sides of the story, which is, I guess, technically not a lie or it is a lie of omission of sorts, but the, the net of it is that they're basically saying, as in Utah's case now, um, you know, there's cost, cost, costs, and ignoring the fact that there's also uh, a revenue aspect of, of these things. How do or how can communities combat this? Um, and we'll start with Sandy because you guys had to do this a lot in order to prevail and and you were competing against three hundred and some odd thousand dollars of Comcast money on two of those three uh, initiatives. But but how do you how do you fight that live omission? You know, I think the biggest thing for us, um, and we really tried to stay true to it. We I mean, we did stay true to it through all the different election processes. Was that we're going to take the high ground on this information, and so what we provided was factual summaries, both the pros and the cons of what this is going to look like. In fact, um, in Colorado, the factual summary literally has to have bullet points under each, those in favor believe and those opposed believe. So we actually produced documentation and sent them to every single registered voter um, that said, hey, some people believe that uh, municipalities should not be allowed to pursue these kinds of opportunities. And on the other side, people who are in favor of this believe that these are the reasons why we should leverage the infrastructure that you, the taxpayer, already paid for in order to give you exponential benefit. So I think what we really tried to do was just keep to the facts ourselves, take the higher ground, continue to talk about it with both sides, with, you know, with both the equal balanced side, and as people are seeing that, then they have a tendency not to believe the big spin kinds of um, ads and things that they then started to see because they could see where the other side of that argument came in. You know, in our first referendum, I don't think that the that the folks in Longmont were as educated in telecom services at that time. You know, mm -hmm. 2009, I think people were just kind of starting to get their legs around what does that mean. Um, and so when it failed, Genuinely, there was a kind of a cry out from, from, from some of our more active citizens saying, 
what are you guys thinking? And they started a citizen initiative then that really pulled together and made a big difference in the 2011 um, ballot issue because I think most people assumed the 2009 one would pass and didn't really understand the impacts of TV commercials and tons and tons of flyers on your <laughs> doors and those kinds of things. And so the citizens themselves sort of came unglued after that failure of that of, uh, of the first referendum and in the second referendum really just came out in huge numbers to, to support it and uh, convinced people, educated people what broadband is, uh, what the benefits were to the city, and I think that made a huge difference for Longmont. Mm-hmm. So in, Jesse, so now in, in Utah, you guys are in the midst of this kind of uh, uh, lie of admission, if you will. How, how are you guys, how are the supporters of the deal uh, countering this kind of activity or this, this kind of tactic? You know, I've honestly been pretty surprised this time around. Um, up until McQuarrie came on the scene, what would happen is someone would contact me and say, hey, I found your site. I love what you're doing. You know, I want to get this going in my city. Will you do it for me? And <laughs> I shrugged my shoulders and I'm like, well, no, because I, I have a day job and this is my hobby <laughs> that I do on the side. And if I'm going to be putting in the kind of work needed to build this, me first. <laughs> right, uh, right. And, what, and what's happening now is people in areas are starting to spontaneously organize. And, um, you know, there are people in other cities that are taking the lead and getting supporters to show up to city council meetings and hit city ca- council members with information. And, um, you know, it's, it's really encouraging to see that people have finally hit the point where they're saying, you know what? I want better broadband, and I really don't care what I have to do to get it anymore, and I'm going to start doing the work. Uh, So I've seen groups in both Murray and Orem spring up, hundreds of people who are packing council meetings and um, really communicating effectively. And it's, it's hard to say, here's what you do to make that happen, because it happened just organically. Mm hmm Yeah. So I think the biggest challenge is you need to find the people out there in the public who will be your champion and who will get all the people who are supporters, but not necessarily the ones who are crazy enough like me to devote a whole bunch of time and energy to promoting it in their spare time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and finding those leaders, I mean, it's, it's hard to find them, but when you find them, you need to make sure you're staying in communication with them, you're giving them what they need, uh, directing other people who are supporters to them, um, because that kind of that kind of grassroots is invaluable. Uh, that 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 kind of stuff can counter the half million dollar buys from big telecom. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. That's an excellent point. Right, because you guys, especially about the, the second time around in Longmont, there were folks engaged that were out and they were showing up in meetings and I believe there was a picnic that you guys had or some sort of afternoon county fair kind of deal. Everybody showed up and, and uh, I think Alcatel Lucent was a sponsor of that. And that, and that basically led to um, a more educated and a more engaged uh, general uh, population. Now, what about the um, – you can't match them – dollar for dollar because that just gets outrageous if you're the if you're the community and then once you have the referendum ballot on the board it's a little difficult then because at least in i know in, in colorado and probably in other states as well the, the city can't advocate for something that's on on the ballot so you have to uh find alternative methods to meet the the dollar deficiency is pr um the the community broadband advocates friend. We'll start maybe with well, Jesse. You are the media. It, it certainly is. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've I've been doing this kind of thing long enough that <clears throat> reporters will usually, local reporters will contact me and say, "Hey, I'm having trouble understanding this. Help me get up to speed." Um, I've got enough content out there that my you know biggest source of traffic are, is people doing Google searches with questions. Um, you know, that's those are things that are, are invaluable is to be able to get out there and, you know, have 
make sure that you are known as an authoritative source so that when people have a question, your your name is the one that's always popping up. Um, you know, you can do relatively inexpensive online advertising to capitalize on that too. Uh, I, <clears throat> I spent maybe $500 on Facebook ads on posts that I'd written supporting the Macquarie proposal, and that's reached probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40,000 people across the, the various cities. And that's a, that's a pretty low dollar amount to spend to be able to reach 40,000 people and have 1,500 of them actually engage with what you've written. <clears throat> so there are ways to cheaply get the word out. You, know, you don't need to spend $10,000 buying yard signs and sending mailers and, you know, fancy T-shirts and barbecues and all that other stuff. That's, that's silly. You, you, you have to figure out how am I going to target the people who would be interested in this and use cheap methods to get that content in front of them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and really what it takes is consistently write good stuff. It, you get it, you get Google indexing it, people go searching with questions on something and you're the one always popping up you're controlling the conversation at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the opposition site to the deal, I, I for the first few days that they were sending out mailers, I actually had a higher Google ranking than they did uh, for the for for searching their own search term. And you can't buy that kind of front page exposure. And you know that's what you have to do is be smart and outmaneuver them. Mm-hmm. Now, in your case, you know, with the um, Macquarie deal, one of the challenges is the fact that you guys are going <clears throat> to the, the 11 cities and you basically have to get buy-in, which is a process pretty much akin to herding cats. Um, have have uh, the AstroTurf congregation there, have they spent a lot of money? Have they... Uh, have they used PR? I mean, what's what's their main line of attack against you guys? They've put they've been dropping money on the, the Utah Taxpayers Association, which is known locally as a hatchet man. Um, the, a company wants something in politics, but they don't want to get their hands directly dirty. They sign up for a membership with the Utah Taxpayers Association, cut them a nice big check and, you know, let it go from there. And that's that's what CenturyLink has done. I mean, CenturyLink's vice president sits on their executive committee. So you kind of know which side their toast is buttered on. Uh, I also had an eyewitness tell me that he saw that he was contracted to create the whole Unopia media campaign, the the campaign opposing the deal. And when he got the check, you want to guess whose logo is on it? CenturyLink. Mm-hmm. And it was it was ten grand. They put they spent ten grand, and honestly, ten grand to protect a multi billion dollar business that's that's pretty cheap. Indeed, indeed. Um, now, in in Longmont, Sandy, you I mean, you are part of the the, the structure, but um, wasn't one of the advantages in Longmont that you that that you guys had developed a basically a bipartisan base of support among both the um, elected officials and potential elected officials and both or all political parties within Longmont, right? Yes, I think that was huge because the, the nice thing about technology is that it doesn't have a partisan swing, right? So, um, you know, and it doesn't cost a lot of money to get the word out when you're really a technologically based group, right? So, um, you know, being high on the Google searches, being able to use social media, all of these kinds of things, I think in 2009, maybe that wasn't even as prevalent, but by 2011, technology had changed so much that more people were on social media that weren't, and you, you just saw it all the way across the community that uh, there was not a single candidate who was um, running for election that opposed the broadband um, piece, and in fact, I think the news media also helped with that because in 2009, there was really just a lack of understanding of what in the heck broadband really meant to this community, and even the local paper took a position opposing the ballot issue. In 2011, they took a position, uh, they wrote an editorial page supporting it, and so it really became something in Longmont that you just didn't really 
want to oppose because everybody just seemed so excited for what it meant for the community, not only for each individual household, but for the economic development side of it, the educational side of it, all the other pieces that they could now start to very clearly see how it could benefit. And, you know, interestingly enough, I think in 2009, um, as soon as people realized how much the Colorado Telecom Association had spent against that, which was just about $250,000 on the first election, I think people were mortified and horrified and felt like they had been sort of taken for a ride. Um, it was the most anybody had ever spent in any election in Longmont, and it was only surpassed by 2011 when they spent $300,000 additionally. And so I think people started to see through that type of old media, right, the, all the flyers and, and the lawn signs and all the things that Jesse was just talking about. I think people started to see through that as political rhetoric, and here was an opportunity for, for all of the different um, facets of politics to become united around something, and they did. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about another sort of line of attack, if you will, and that is the technology dis distortion message. Um, Jesse, I think you have, you have seen it um, several times. Uh, I'm not sure if it was as prevalent in, in Longmont, but basically this is one of those things where they fight the community's effort because they fight uh, on, under the banner of this will be obsolete, so why should the community do it? Because how are they going to keep up with, with the changes and, and, and stuff along those lines? Jesse, you can probably enlighten us to more of the specifics of the, the tech distortion uh, attack that you guys get. Yeah, the, it's just based on taking advantage of the fact that people don't really understand the underlying technology. They say, oh, well, all technology changes, so you know what you have now is going to be old and busted, and it completely ignores reality. I mean, you've got fibers that were laid in the 70s that are doing 10 and 40 gig now. Um, current fibers have been tested to do 1.4 terabits without breaking a sweat, and they're still finding new ways to up that. So to try and say, you know, the fiber technology is going to be obsolete, well, there is nobody with a solid tech mind who would ever possibly say that. Um, it could be accurate to say, Wireless is very efficient cost-wise to deploy, but it also ignores that wireless has so many issues with crosstalk, with interference, never hitting peak speed. Uh, More often than not, it's in unlicensed bands, which are subject to all kinds of outside interference. Um, Even when they're using licensed bands, that drives the cost up significantly. And you'll notice that most Wi-Fi mesh networks have failed because they did not put enough access points out there. In most cases, they used about a third of the access points they needed um, because they needed to try and keep it cheap to make a keep it cheap to make a buck. But in the process of keeping it cheap, they made it really, really bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who's that's something that they prey on is that people don't understand the technology and they can just bust out some you know a believable lie of oh well all technology changes so this will get outdated and like well. Sure, the electronics will, be, will get outdated eventually, but it took Utopia and Provo a decade to hit the limits of the 100 megabit electronics, which is a pretty good lifespan for any electronic thing. Hmm. Okay. Um, did you guys get much of that in uh, in um, Longmont? Like the you know, we did not really hear a lot about that necessarily, although did people did say, hey, if you installed the, the fiber ring in 1997, how is that worth something today? But it seemed like there was a general understanding that there's not much out there faster than the speed of light and won't be for a while. <laughs> so you, you have that. I mean, I, and I think another, another attack is that um, – the technology changes and it changes too quickly for munis to be able to um, keep up. Uh, I don't know if, if you've heard that one or not, but number one, how true or not true is that particular uh, attack? We can maybe start with uh, Jesse and, and Sandy. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's kind of a silly statement to, lay, to make. I mean, you look at other technologies, um, you know, other utilities that cities run, water, sewer, power, 
I haven't seen any cases where any of them have gotten outdated to the point of uselessness. Um, you know, computer systems, they're following a pretty typical three- to five-year refresh cycle, just like every other business, uh, you know, to pretend that there's that there's something special about immunity that makes them unable to comprehend technology seems pretty silly. Uh, <laughs> you know, and any company can end up with the exact same problems of not understanding technology and using it poorly. Uh, you you see private businesses do it all the time. Heck, their entire website's dedicated to private business stories from private businesses where they have used technology in hilariously disastrous ways. Mm-hmm. And so to say that, you know, these are a bunch of 70-year-old just will never get it, you know, technology idiots is is a ridiculous myth. And who even knows where it got any sort of basis? Just mm-hmm. making crap up. <laughs> so now, Sandy, you guys have been, Longmont has been in the business of broadband in one form or another since, what, 90? It was when, you're, when you first got into this hole with the fiber network? Yes, the fiber network, the fiber ring was finished in 1997. So, so, clearly, so clearly you have evolved with the time, uh, the, the times and, and new technology, correct? Yes, of course. You know, it's interesting, in 2005, um, when, which is when our Senate Bill 152 passed, that's the one that, that basically eliminated municipalities from running broadband utilities unless they had a vote of the people. And at the time, that was a pretty hard-fought amendment to get the vote of the people language into Senate Bill 152. And they really did talk a lot about how this was way too high-tech, that was one of their main arguments in Senate Bill 152 is this is too high tech, this is too risky with taxpayer dollars. Um, and, you know, our, our response to that was, well, 100 years ago, people thought the same thing about electric utilities. <laughs> and yet today, yeah. Longmont has some of the lowest rates and the most reliable electricity in the state. And so, you know, you could say that, but you won't know for another 100 years if you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we probably won't be around for that one, but we'll take, you know, we'll take. And in fact, you know, I want to sort of divert for a second here and talk about um, some of the successes because I, I, I realize that, uh, you know, I usually let my guests do all the talking, but the, the, this particular issue is one uh, that I that I feel fairly passionate about, you know, when it comes to dealing with. Uh, the misassertions, the the distortions of of reality, right? Because we have uh, a network in Thomasville, Georgia, that's been around for 12, 14 years that has been successful. Now, they, you know, all of these cases, they had struggles in the beginning, as many startups do. However, they they've been successful, and they've been successful year after year. And their revenues generated by that particular network contributes to a uh, reduction in taxes there. There's Danville, Virginia. They've built their own network via their public utility, and that has uh, contributed mightily to uh, reducing uh, unemployment, uh, bringing in new businesses, and also transforming how medical services are delivered to their uh, constituents to where they have some of the best medical services, healthcare services uh, in the country because fiber plays a key role in, in delivering that. We have probably, you know, several dozen networks that are community-owned that have been around for 10 years or, or more. Um, you know, there's Tacoma. There's a county network in um, Oh, where is it? Cambria County, Pennsylvania. You know, it's like if you go through the laundry list of the the 300, 400 communities that have broadband networks, and you ask in in just general terms, you know, is the network doing well? And by what I mean by well is breaking even, you find success after success. Now, again, you, you it's not that you don't find failures. It's that it is the level to which opponents of these networks say that they are a failure is a dramatic distortion of the reality of how many of those networks are indeed failures. I think before the show, um, you know, uh, Jesse, you and I had talked about 
a, a couple of these, and and um, you know, I think, so I think it may be helpful just if you you and Sandy could add a couple of other examples of of successes, and not the usual like Chattanooga, because everybody knows Chattanooga is a success. I thought it was very ironic actually that uh, one of these astroturf groups says that. Chattanooga's success is what proves that all the other community networks are failures because they're the exception that proves the rule. Uh, with that bit of bluster, I'm going to, uh, incumbent bluster, I'm going to let you two kind of talk about some of the other successes that you've seen in your travels and research. Uh, okay. Well, just start with Sandy this time because I think you guys did lots and lots of legwork in the run-up for the, the Longmont Network. Yeah, we, we, we definitely had to be able to show other examples of how this works. And you're right, Chattanooga is just a huge, wonderful example. Um, and, and there are others, you know, that are certainly out there. And I think one that we talked about was Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, they approved their bond issue in 2005, which started a fiber group. And, uh, and they've, you know, they've been giving Internet and phone service to residents and businesses. Um, and it's over the city's only 100% fiber optic network. So, it, you know, you, you can see other areas that have done it. I think one of the neatest things that's happened in Longmont since um, the vote passed was that our school district came to us and said, hey, is there some way that you could provide the entire school district, which, which is about six different municipalities. It's, it's a pretty wide area. But could you provide us this high-speed network capability because we're finding that in the classrooms we need to train kids on on jobs that don't exist yet and we need to figure out how we can continue to really get technology into the classroom in a way that you've not seen before and so um, we just recently signed an IGA with them and have started providing them um, internet and, and high-speed broadband services to the school district and it's just a wonderful partnership to see because they're able to save some money on it which is good, and they're able to provide these wonderful high speeds to each and every single classroom in their school district. Um, some of the money that they would have used for that internet, um, you know, for the for the internet prices, they've been able to repurpose for other things, and they've started different kinds of initiatives. Um, I think they have an iPad mini program for many of the middle schoolers now at this point. There's a not only a STEM program, but there's a brand new innovation center, and they won a $16 million race to the top grant in order to really try to figure out how do we prepare these kids for the new reality. Um, and we're just blessed to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Well, just part of the problem that happens here is that we're, we're, we're playing on the opponent's terms. I mean, they keep saying, you know, oh, you're a failure, you're a failure, you're a failure, and all they want to talk about is money. And we need to, we, we've got to stop doing that. Uh, everyone says, oh, Utopia is a failure because, you know, it hasn't been able to cover its bonds or its operational expenses. And I say, well, failure or what? They they were, you know, one of the first in the country to deliver gigabit fiber services to homes. Uh, you know, they cut their – they were the first in Utah to actually offer gigabit service for at all, at all. And they cut it down to 70 bucks a month which they had been planning to do before Google showed up. Uh, it, you know, there are businesses that have relocated to Utopia Cities to take advantage of the fiber. Uh, there are large companies who come to Utopia unsolicited and say, hey, we hear you have great rates on huge fiber trunks. Let's start talking. Uh, they deliver services for the De- Utah Department of Transportation, for the Utah Education Network, which hooks up uh K through 12 and universities throughout the state. Uh, you know, if you're going to say it's a failure, then you have to say failure at what? Because they've succeeded at doing all of these various things that are good things. And, you know, trying to make the argument all about money is playing the opponent's game. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't say it's all about the money. Uh, there's something very, there's something that someone said to me once and you know, it's meant to be a little bit of reference, but it's funny. And they said, well, what's the, the return on investment on your mom? And, you know, it sounds like it's still your mom joke, but then you sit and think about it. It's like, well, what does my mom cost? What's the return on investment? You know, do you say, well, my mom's a terrible return on investment, so I should get rid of her? Of course you don't. You just accept that some things have value, whether or not you can quantify it. Right. That is a rather interesting approach. I, uh, I've never never thought about that one, but it you know, but it but it speaks the truth in the bigger sense of 
<clears throat> we have allowed the discussion to uh, focus on bookkeeping or bookkeeper dollar and cents, you know, in the Wall Street vein of things, and that is our only criteria of success. But when you ask the average community that's had a network for three, four years or longer, the benefits are, are, are a lot intangible. I mean, it's just, it is the way it is. You know, it's like, well, what is the value of having sidewalks? What is the value of having, um, you know, clean water? Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of this stuff that it is not in a dollars and cents term. It's like what I said earlier about the apples to oranges comparison. And, and, and Jesse makes the point, you know, we've got to change the nature of the battle, which is, uh, to me, a, a good point. Let's uh, we got about ten minutes left here, about nine minutes left. One of the issues is that it is also made into a political, a philosophical discussion. You know, governments should not be in private sector business, period. Whereas this may not necessarily fall into the category of lies and distortions, but isn't it an erroneous argument to be made in this day and age, given the nature of the technology? And uh, I'll start with Sandy on, on this one, because you are the, the government. <laughs> um, you know, speaking from the dark side, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, th I think what's interesting about that, government shouldn't provide these things. Like I said, 100 years ago, we made the same choice about electricity in Longmont. Um, and, and I think there's an underlying assumption to that. So if government shouldn't be providing this, then the underlying assumption is that residents are completely satisfied with the availability, the quality, and the cost of the service they're already receiving here. And what we found is that because of the, the winners and losers argument where they really choose who they're going to provide these, this level of service to, what ends up happening is we have underserved populations. I mean, we're, we're 38 miles outside of uh, Denver. We shouldn't, we're not that far off the grid, and yet we have serious areas in Longmont that are just not served by high-speed broadband services. And so what we started to realize is that it's not really about competition as much as it's about equity, and it's about providing a new utility um, that everyone's going to need. Every school child now needs to figure out how to use the Internet and, and is required for different pieces of homework, and, you know, it's part of businesses. You don't start really a business without Internet services. And so it is a utility very similar to all of the other utilities that we do provide. As you said, water and sewer and electricity and you know, in, in trash services. And so, you know, I think the assumption that everyone's fine, if everyone was fine, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> right. Jesse, what's, your, so, what's you know, your take on that? It's easy to say, you know, government shouldn't do X or government shouldn't do Y. But what we're looking at here is a situation where someone can very, very easily establish a physical monopoly on what's considered to be a pretty critical service. Um, you know, you look at things like electrical, water, gas, sewer. We don't have competing infrastructures for those. And the reason we don't have competing infrastructures for those is it is very difficult to build a competing infrastructure and have it succeed just because of the, the constraints there. Uh, Timothy B. Lee's piece on the weird economics of utilities really nailed it, of saying, hey, you know, there reaches a point where after you build, you know, maybe two or three infrastructures, you're saturated. The return on investment for building additional infrastructures to compete is just way, way out there. So if you're going to be in a situation where there's going to be a monopoly, the question you have to ask yourself is, if you believe in a good competitive market, what's better for you, a monopoly that is controlled by a government directly accountable to you, or a legally sanctioned private monopoly that is not directly accountable to you and frequently manipulates the people who they are accountable to to get what they want. And, and that's really it. Is Do you want a crony system or do you want a real free market system? Mm -hmm. and, and the free market discussion really seems to miss another point. You know, we talk about how we shouldn't let the ROI of, of networks be defined by uh, money, and that's where the incumbents control the debate. But also this free market discussion, we allow the incumbents to dictate the terms of free market, 
when in reality, if you believe that sincerely, then if a group of people in a market, a city, a town, a county, if they decide that they want to buy uh, services from option B instead of option A, and option B happens to be the government, so what? You know, because the free market thing is all about the market deciding. And so in those communities where the market decides, whether by vote, by city council approval, or whatever, that they want to have broadband in the configuration that they've defined, whether it's city-owned, utility-owned, or whatever, then that market has spoken, and the incumbents basically and all of their cronies and supporters are, in essence, arguing against a free market, not in favor of a free market. Is that you got about a minute each? You know, is that a fair assessment or or not? Start with Jesse. I think it is a fair assessment. Um, you know, many of them built their networks either with direct tax dollars or with a legal prohibition on competition, and that is inherently a cronyist a cronyist position to take. Every time they come back to negotiate their franchise agreements, they get similar terms baked right in. Um, you know, they they barely compete with each other and that's kind of the way they want to keep it is we've got the market locked up and pretty well divided. Um, most phone companies are trying to push everybody onto higher margin, lower cost wireless. so that They can completely kill the landline, which would leave landline service to be the exclusive domain of cable operators. Um, you know, you want to talk about monopolies taking over everything. Well, that's exactly where it's heading. And it is a very dangerous thing for any anyone in any to wield too much power in a given space, whether that's public power or private power. Sandy, I think that's a good point, and you know it does make me it does make me wonder, and I think many voters in Longmont wondered what are they afraid of. I mean, the reality is that we don't regulate them; we have to participate in the same market, and to some extent, because we are the government, we need to make sure that we're even additionally fair and equitable and that we're offering the same opportunities to everybody in the community. So if anything, there's, there may be an, even a disadvantage competitively to that. So I, I guess that would be my question. What are they afraid of? Very interesting indeed. This is a, um, <clears throat> you know, I think this has been a good conversation and probably one that needs to be replicated uh, over and over again, which is um, there's a lot of misconception, distortion, out-and-out lies, out-and-out, you know, fabrication of fact, uh, distortion of technology, all of these things <clears throat> that tend to stifle the discussion or skew the discussion away from the validity of a community making its own decision to provide in whatever manner it chooses the solution to this broadband uh, question. And so I think that the, the, the solution has to be continual discussions such as this, you know, bringing in people like Jesse, like Sandy, folks who are living the, the, the situation or have lived the situation, and educate the rest of the folks around us that, you know what, um, <clears throat> we need to be left alone to, to, to pull out the real facts and make our, make our best decisions based on what our needs are. And so uh, for having both of you in to, to help move this idea along of, you know, educating those around us, I appreciate both of you and your time today, and thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. So now, thank you for having us. Uh, no, no worries. No worries. We'll keep in touch. You know, Longmont obviously is in a different position. You're moving forward with the network, in which I wish you much continued, continued success. Jesse, as always, you know, I appreciate the fact that you're out there fighting the good fight and everything that I can do to help. Uh, we'll, uh, you know, carry on. Let's just get it done. Um, to our audience, thank you for, uh, for listening. And then definitely in this one case, I think that, you know, if you've learned a lot, and you have started to see the difference between, you know, the myth and the reality as it's being presented by the opposition, you know, pass this along to uh, your friends and your neighbors and so forth because community broadband is a viable avenue, though not necessarily the only one, but it's definitely a viable avenue forward for a lot of communities, and we really need to get to the truth and the heart of the matter and move these projects forward despite the opposition. 
So I will get off my soapbox. Wish all wish all of you a great rest of your day. Uh, and stay tuned. We'll be back again with another great show. Okay.